And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, new small business subcontracting rule means headaches for everyone. Plus, a defense agency helps a civilian agency with a key post-disaster function. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Space Force says the way it purchased small, low-Earth orbit satellites is a model for faster and cheaper acquisition in general. The Space Development Agency launched the first group of the satellites in April, two and a half years after starting the acquisition. For them, that's fast. For more, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with the agency's Colonel Kellyroy Landry. In early April, we launched the first launch of Tranche Zero, which is our demonstration tranche, and we expect to launch the second set of satellites at the end of June. Is that Tranche Zero? It's still part of Tranche Zero, and the total constellation for Tranche Zero is going to be 28 satellites. So first launch had 10 satellites, and then the second launch, we notify what the manifest will be approximately 30 days before launch. And it's running on schedule at this point? At this point in time, uh, everything is progressing with the schedule. We will be launching at the end of June. Who's doing the launching? Is it multiple sources? So the launch is happening with SpaceX. SDA has contracted directly with SpaceX to provide the launches for Tranche Zero. How many uh, satellites are launched per launch vehicle? So it depends on the mass and the volume of all the space vehicles. We're planning uh, for Tranche 1 to launch an entire plane of satellites in Tranche 1. That would be approximately 20 satellites. Um, depending on which plane we're launching um, and which capability is going up. The volume of the fairing for the rockets can hold more, but it's just what do we have ready, right? And so in April, when we launched that first launch, we had 10 satellites ready to go. And so that's what went up on that launch. And uh, what's going up in June? So June, uh, like I said, we're, we're planning what the manifest will be but um, it'll be uh, the additional satellites as part of our constellation. The total Tranche Zero constellation will be approximately 28 space vehicles. We're tracking how everything is progressing to be ready for launch. All right, and I know at some point it stops being sort of a test launch and test satellites, and you're going to start actually sending up there for real. Is, is that how you would describe it, or you describe it to me? So the demonstration tranche versus the operational tranche is just a matter of how you use the capability. The demonstration tranche is an opportunity to see how all the parts and pieces of the architecture actually work. Um, so that when we send up the next tranche, which we want to have our initial warfighter capability, um, we will prove out the proliferation and we will do, we'll run more rigorous tests with the satellites to get to a point where it's operationally accepted. And that's when we get the warfighter representatives involved in what we're actually testing and demonstrating so that they have confidence that the service that SDA is providing through this proliferated warfighter space architecture can be depended upon in order to conduct operational missions. Can you tell me a little bit about what that service is? So our service is high-speed data transport for tactical users and also beyond line-of-sight targeting support. And we also have a sensing layer for missile warning capabilities. And so after June, what comes next? We're planning on our Tranche 1 launches. Tranche 1 is scheduled to have initial launch capability in September of 2024. So that fits with our spiral development, our tranche model of delivering new capability or improved capability on, a, on an every two-year cycle so that we, we continue to incrementally improve the service that is provided to the warfighter. Talk to me a little about the process of acquiring these satellites. I understand it was mainly commercial satellites that you used, and it does look like it was a pretty quick process. 
Yeah, so the concept really is not having to develop brand new things. What we want to do is work with space vehicle vendors to use a commoditized bus, something that's already kind of ready to go, but then we add our payloads on there for the special missions that we want to accomplish. So that cuts down a lot of the manufacturing uh, time and, and design time. There's something that's already proven that we just add on the specific mission unique items and then we we roll through our design reviews and manufacturing more quickly in order to meet our two-year timeline. Having kind of pulled this off for this summer and looking towards 2024, are there things you see that you need to tweak in that process? So we've learned a lot in the development in the road to launching Tranche Zero um, and how to work with the space vehicle vendors to ensure that they're staying on track. And then things that we've learned from the Tranche Zero activity has rolled into how we write requirements in our Tranche 1 activity and our Tranche 2 activity. So the early tranches are not necessarily seeing major leaps and bounds in what's actually delivered, but what we are seeing is how does SDA communicate what we expect to receive from the contractors, right? And we write it better to minimize ambiguity and have clarity in our expectations so that they deliver what we actually want and need. Can you give me any examples of lessons learned that go into that requirement process? We have been working with refining some of the standards that we use in order to bring multiple space vehicle vendors on board and, and all work together. They have to work with some level of standards. And so we have our optical crosslink terminals um, have a standard that people need to design to. So we've refined some of that language and um, technology expectation on there. We also have our networking standard, which we call Nebula, and that allows the overall constellation network to route data more efficiently. And so by having those standards available, refining them as we see things need to be communicated better, then industry is able to read that, interpret what we want, and provide solutions to meet our needs. Moving forward, do you see yourself using the same vendors you've used? Will, will you be adding vendors? SDA's model is to avoid vendor lock. And so we encourage the competition, we want the competition. And what you'll see in, as we approach Tranche 2, what we've communicated is uh, our Tranche 2 transport layer is going to have three different variants and there will be multiple awards for each variant. So it's not locked into what has been delivered already for Tranche 0 or Tranche 1. There's plenty of opportunity for other vendors to come and play with SDA. Have the request gone out for that? We put out the Tranche 2 transport layer beta solicitation and proposals actually due today. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what comes in for that. And we have already posted a draft RFP for our Tranche 2 transport layer alpha. And so those are the first two that are coming through. We should have a contract award for beta in the summer and Alpha, we would expect a contract award in the fall. And then we have a Gamma solicitation that will come out later in the summer as well. And if I remember correctly, those don't go in order. It's Beta, then Alpha, right? <laughs> <laughs> so technically, the alphabet goes Alpha, Beta, Gamma. But we decided to put out the Beta solicitation first because there's some level of additional development because of the mission unique things that need to happen on there. The Alpha one is very similar to the T1 transport layer uh, solution. And so we could release that one just a couple of months later, and then they should kind of meet on time for launch. Colonel Kelly Roy Landry, chief of the support cell at the Space Development Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a defense agency helps a civilian agency with a key post-disaster function. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Defense Logistics Agency will aid FEMA in feeding disaster victims. Specifically, the DLA's troop support acquires the rations used by troops the world over. Now it's created what it calls the Survivor Daily Ration for use by FEMA. Here with the details of this interagency program, the Troop Support Operational Rations Chief, Harry Strybick. Mr. Strybick, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you're the guy that provides the food that the armies march on, the navies sail on, and the airmen fly on? That is correct. Myself and I have a great team that I work with that makes that all successful. And is this the first time you've done interagency work with FEMA, or tell us uh, the picture there? Yes. So we have had a long relationship with FEMA, we meaning DLA Troop Support, basically dating back to 2005 with Hurricane Katrina, of course, and then followed up by Rita and Wilma sort of in succession there back in 2005. That's where our relationship with providing them with meals for disaster survivors started up. Got it. All right. So just give us a quick overview of the activity that goes on there. Now, the troop support, that's under DLA, correct? That is correct. We are basically a supply chain logistics and procurement agency, which is our specialty. So we procure all the uh, food, clothing, and medical supplies for the military and make sure we get it there on time and, and at a fair price. Because food covers a lot of territory. There are MREs and that kind of thing for actual troops in the field. But then if you ever look in the storeroom of a battleship, you know, there's a crate of oranges the size of a small car. We have different divisions here within the what we call the Directorate of Subsistence. And right in my primary area, which is the operational rations that you mentioned, our goal is to feed the, the actual warfighter in the field, like you mentioned. And then we have other divisions that you mentioned feed you know, the Navy on ships, troops within what we call prime vendors, whether they're overseas or here in the United States, where they provide basic items that the military requests on their catalog so that they can feed in their dining facilities also. So, yes, we have a varied array of services and supplies that we do feed the warfighter. And sometimes you see these contests and chef bake-offs and so forth within the military, but the bottom line is that food, food preparation, food logistics is really a crucial function and one the military spends a lot of time thinking about and doing, isn't it? They do, absolutely. And we have quite a few partnerships. It doesn't just happen. I mean, we, we rely on the different military uh, services. The Army every year has a cooking competition. I believe the Marines have it also. And then with ourselves here in Operational Rations, we have a, an R&D center up in uh, Natick, Massachusetts, who sort of makes things happen for us. You know, the Army comes to us and says, hey, we need a, an MRE that's going to last for three years and it needs to taste good. And, you know, we have to have a variety of menus. And our partners up at Natick R&D Center develop all that, test it with the warfighter. And then once it's approved, we call it warfighter tested, warfighter approved. Then they send us all the requirements and then we go out to our vendors and buy it. And then next thing you know, our warfighter out in the field has it. So it is it is a uh, team effort, definitely, with a lot of different moving parts. Yeah, I've tried those MREs, and, you know, they're really not bad. I'm not sure how I would like them for 42 days in a row, but that's where right. they say no charms for the Marine Corps, correct? The candy's right. not allowed in correct. there. I always say it's not mom's home cooking, but in a pinch, it'll do it. They have improved quite a bit. Yeah, a long time from those cans, you know, that, that used to be what they call those K-rations of the past we're speaking with Harry Strybeck. He's Operational Rations Chief in the Troop Support Subsistence Supply Chain. That's part of the Defense Logistics Agency's troop support. And let's talk about the interagency with FEMA, this idea of the daily ration, kind of a bucket of food that can last one person one day. What's going on here? Again, we've had a long partnership with FEMA, as I mentioned, uh, probably started in 05 with Katrina, and it's developed and evolved over the years here. So basically, we provide food. FEMA comes to us in need when they have to feed their disaster survivors. Usually it's a hurricane. I mean, we've also done ice storms, you know, fires, windstorms, that type of thing. Whenever there's a large disaster that takes place where the infrastructure is wiped out and you know, there's no electricity and that type of thing, so they can't get food for quite a while. So FEMA comes to us and partners with us to provide food. And again, we started out with years ago what we would call the, the commercial shelf-stable meal. 
which I would consider more of a box lunch that sort of did the trick. We handed them out. You probably would see them on TV when they would show uh, the aftermath of a hurricane that comes through where the, the guard or somebody like that or from FEMA would be handing out meals as they queue up in line to these survivors. That worked great for a time, and it still does, but those meals, I mentioned being box lunches, usually only had a nine-month shelf life, and they would include things like can of tuna or chicken or, you know, a pasta or beans and franks, those type of things, the pop-top openers and chips, cookies, raisins, you know, candy. So anything you would see as a box lunch. And, and we usually had a, an array of vendors who would prepare them for us when needed. They were made to order. That was great at the time, but sometimes FEMA was looking for a, a longer shelf life item that would last longer than nine months so that if they didn't use them, they could store them and still have them for future disaster needs. So about a year ago, they came to us and said, can you give us something that would last three years so that we could store them in our warehouses throughout the country rather than uh, when a disaster strikes, you know, have them made to order. This way we could preposition when something was coming up. So we worked with them and we worked with some of our vendors and created this survivor daily ration, which did have a three-year shelf life. And we just recently put it into place in December of last year and received the first order from FEMA in January and, and made first delivery last month in April. So we're anxiously waiting to, to get feedback from FEMA, but we think this is going to be a great addition to the uh, partnership we have with FEMA where we can develop it, get them their rations ahead of time that they can store them and be more prepared for prepositioning. And what is in this daily ration and what is the form factor of it? The SDR is basically enough to feed one person for one day. It's very similar to that commercial meal that we bought previously, but it has things like uh, maybe for an entree, and usually they have two entrees because that would feed, again, two meals during the day. You might have a spaghetti uh, with meatballs or some type of pasta, chicken with chili, uh, mac and cheese, that type of thing. You know, it's heavy on protein in terms of peanut butter and jelly. You might have a chocolate bar in there or a cookie, a toaster pastry or a, a smoothie. So it's got quite a variety. And again, FEMA made sure that there was a good amount of protein. But I wanted to highlight, we also have, and they asked us to develop a vegetarian Survivor Daily Ration, which we've also done. So basically the side dishes are the same, but we might have a pasta with vegetables or a bean salad or a lentil stew for the vegetarians out there who might require them. So uh, we have quite an array of items. And you can get spaghetti and meatballs to last three years. How does it get heated up? It doesn't have to be heated up to be very palatable. We have heaters in our MRE, but those are basically uh, very complex, and a, and a soldier would need to do that. So we don't include those for the general population. It's also a safety issue for the general population. But we call these items shelf-stable items where they don't need to be refrigerated and they don't need to be heated. So they can last for three years when stored properly. And basically, when you open it up, it's eaten room temperature, but they are quite good. If there is a heating area facilities. Many times there's not, so we don't need that or require that, but it's basically quite good when it's eaten at room temperature also. Yeah, sure. Who hasn't raided the kitchen late at night when things are cooled exactly. off and, you know, had a mouthful of this or that exactly. that's left they, over? It will definitely uh, fit the bill. And FEMA pays for this. In other words, this is part of their budget. That is correct. So our relationship with FEMA is, again, very close. But again, we're Department of Defense, they're Department of Homeland Security, but we have a great working relationship with them. And we stay in close contact even prior to, you know, hurricanes brewing and that type of thing. So when FEMA decides they have a need for these meals, they come to us at DLA with a funded requisition. And they say, okay, DLA, we would like you to buy X amount of meals for us, whether it's commercial, shelf-stable, or now moving to the SDR. We'll come and say, okay, DLA, we need you to buy X amount of SDRs and deliver them to our warehouse in such and such. They have about five or six warehouses throughout the country. And so then we get a funded requisition and put the requirement on contract. We have three contractors who also do our MRE contracts, so they're very well experienced and equipped to do this type of work in terms of kitting and putting things together very quickly and then getting them out to our customers. So 
once we get that requisition, we put it on the contract. And depending on the volume of the requisition on the, and the amount of meals they need, we could go to one, two, or all three of our contractors to procure the requirement. Because again, time is always of the essence. So even though one of the vendors could get it done in a month or something like that, if they need it a lot quicker, we would go to all three and spread it out so that they could get it in, in two weeks rather than a month. So again, a great relationship with our vendors and with FEMA that to, to get this accomplished. And just a quick question to wrap up. You mentioned the vegetarian requirement, and that's a growing thing, you know, nationally. What about the desire, or do you get demand for, say, kosher or halal types of entrees? For our military, Tom, we do have a kosher and a halal menu strictly for our military, for our service members. Demand would be so low for FEMA, the, the requirement would not be there that we could you know, have our vendors make enough because it would be such a small demand. So they are not included in the uh, SDR for FEMA at this time. All right. Harry Strybick is Operational Rations Chief in the Troop Support Subsistence Supply Chain, and this is all at the Defense Logistics Agency's Troop Support. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, you're welcome. Thanks very much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the EPA funneled enforcement into a difficult-to-reach part of the country. But first, new small business subcontracting rules mean headaches for probably everyone. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Watch out. A new small business subcontracting rule took effect recently. It sharpens the limitations on subcontracting on set-aside contracts. It harmonizes a confusing situation of a mismatch between small business administration rules and the federal acquisition regulation. Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Dan Ramish joins me with the details. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. What this new rule does, then, is match what Congress said it wanted for subcontracting under set-asides, and now the FAR and the SBA rules match? These new SBA rules are part of a series of changes that SBA has made to clarify protections for small business set-aside awards to make sure that small businesses aren't just acting as a front for large businesses and that the small businesses themselves are benefiting from set-aside work. These new rules, the refinements of longstanding rules, one of them is the limitations on subcontracting, which provides a, a specific limit as to the percentage of work that a small business prime contractor that receives a set-aside award can subcontract to businesses that are not small or that don't have the applicable socioeconomic status. Right, so and that's for, always been under 50%, right? Yeah, so the maximum is 50% of the amount paid by the government can be subcontracted to large businesses or businesses that are not, as the, the term is, similarly situated. So if it's a woman-owned small business set aside, the woman-owned small business prime contractor can't have a non-woman-owned business as a subcontractor performing more, you know, more than that 50%. Yeah, I mean, the uh, basic idea here is that, you know, Lockheed and IBM and you name the company can't hang a little sign on the front that says, 8A company. But really, you know, once you lift the sign past the nose, the camel is the large company. That's right. I mean, the government-wide goals are 23% for small businesses of prime contract value. And there are goals for all these other statuses, right? And it's hard for agencies to meet those. And so the, the concern of SBA is, well, exactly as you say, large businesses will find ways to get around the rules. Sure. And so limitations on subcontracting are, are one of those ways. And it's a requirement that small business prime contractors have, now there is going to be a new, more certain penalty for small businesses. There are already monetary penalties, and there's a mention of debarment in the existing rules, but those are hard for agencies to enforce. The new penalties relate to past performance ratings. And so they say specifically that a contracting officer can't generally now give a satisfactory, a positive past performance evaluation if at the end of a contract, they determine that the prime contractor didn't comply with the limitations on subcontracting. Does that mean they can't give it a 
Does that mean they can give a negative rating? It means they must give a negative rating. Got it. Uh, unless there are special circumstances, but they make it difficult for the contracting officer to use those exceptions. So not only do they have to find that there was something outside of the contractor's control that resulted in their inability to, to meet this requirement, and that has to be something like force majeure or unexpected changes in you know their supply chain things that are that they couldn't have anticipated unforeseen labor shortages those kinds of things so there has to be those those extenuating circumstances and then the rules also say it has to be approved at a level above the contracting officer so SBA is really telling agencies you have to give a negative performance rating unless you jump through all these hoops and there's really a good reason not to. The offshoot of this is it's been hard for agencies to enforce these rules, first because the formulas are complicated, but then, you know, SBA has found that agencies haven't been providing adequate oversight. And so they're trying to raise the stakes for non-compliance and deter prime contractors from ignoring these rules by making it clear that there, there are going to be consequences to past performance and their ability to win new work if they ignore the rules. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And I wanted to ask you about one provision in here that's a little bit complicated. That's the ostensible subcontractor rule, which is sort of a complication and a watch here. What is that all about? This is another mechanism that SBA regulations have for making sure that large businesses aren't trying to get around the rules and take advantage of small businesses to get set aside dollars. This rule has been around a long time. It's it's typically litigated in size protests at SBA area offices and then at the Office of Hearing and Appeals of the SBA, which has administrative judges that hear appeals of size protests. And so this rule, basically, there are two different prongs of this. The SBA uh, Office of Hearings and Appeals will look at whether the prime contractor on a set-aside contract is subcontracting the primary and vital requirements of the contract. So if a small business wins this award and then gives the core part of the work defined in the case law as the principal purpose of the acquisition, they just have a large business do the, the main work and they just do a little side piece, then that's a violation and results in affiliation. Or the other prong is if, if the prime contractor is unusually reliant on a subcontractor, and that has its own separate test where, again, SBA looks at it and says, this is really a large business acting through a small business. And so there are new rules here on the ostensible subcontractor rule that provide a safe harbor. And it actually relates to the other rule that we mentioned, the limitations on subcontracting. So now moving forward, if there is a challenge regarding the ostensible subcontractor rule and a competitor saying, you small business have violated the rule, the small business can point to the limitations on subcontracting. If they can demonstrate that they are satisfying that limitation that they're not for service and supply contracts, subcontracting more than 50% of the dollars they get from the government, then that's a defense and SBA won't find them in violation of the ostensible subcontractor rule. Well, here's a twist that I'll throw at you. Suppose that the dollars going to the sub, which is the large business, are 45% or 35%, and therefore you're well below that limitation on how much you can subcontract out of the dollar value. What if that 35% or nevertheless is paying for the main work and the 65% of the dollars are paying for the ancillary? What's the situation then? Sure. So the safe harbor says SBA is not even going to get into that. For their purposes, as, as long as the small business is doing at least the 50% of the work on a service or supply contract, they're not going to let a competitor argue that the primary and vital functions are being subcontracted to a large business. Uh, if they're doing that much of the work, the purpose of the set-aside is satisfied. The small business is getting the benefit of it. Now, there is one exception to this safe harbor, and that's for construction services because, and this is based on the nature of the construction industry. So the limitations on subcontracting rule actually has a different threshold for construction and says a general construction contractor can actually subcontract 85% of the dollars that it gets from the government. And so the safe harbor doesn't extend to the construction industry if there is a general construction contract. But the rule does provide additional clarity for those contractors because it defines what is considered the primary and vital functions on a general construction contract. And it says the management, supervision, and oversight of the project, including the coordinating of work of various subcontractors and not the actual construction work that's performed, is the primary and vital functions. So if you're a general 
contractor on a construction project and you're a small business on a set aside, if you were doing the oversight and management and supervision, which is the traditional rule, that's the key function on those contracts. This provides clarity so you don't have to worry about interpreting what, what the primary and vital functions of those contracts are. Right, because if you're building a parking structure, say, and you're overseeing that as a small business, you're going to have to buy the steel from likely a large company or a fabricator, and those tend to be bulky companies. And so the biggest cost element might be the steel components, but you're still safe because you're overseeing it and managing it. That's right. You, you wouldn't be subcontracting the primary and vital functions. There's an acknowledgement that in the, those circumstances, you're using a whole bunch of different trade contractors. The management is, is the key thing. All right. So this rule is in place. What do you think agencies need to do and what do companies need to do? We know it. What small businesses need to do is mine their P's and Q's on how they subcontract. Anything else yeah. the agencies ought to be doing to, to make sure it doesn't happen in the first place? Well, contracting officers will certainly be paying more attention to the limitations on subcontracting to follow this new past performance requirement. For contractors, the limitations on subcontracting, there should be a renewed focus to make sure that they're going to be able to comply by the end of the contract with those requirements, or there are going to be more certain consequences. And then on the ostensible subcontractor piece, it'll be helpful for prime contractors to have some kind of contemporaneous documentation that they're going to meet the limitations on subcontracting rule, so that if they get challenged on this ostensible subcontractor rule, they'll be able to say, hey, look, we're complying with the limitations on subcontracting. It's not always the case when you're submitting a proposal or entering into teaming arrangements that you document exactly how much of the work you're going to perform. But now there's an additional benefit to doing that so that you can use it as a defense against this rule. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks for making sure we're on our P's and Q's everywhere. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the EPA funneled enforcement into a difficult-to-reach part of the country. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Region 6 of the EPA encompasses 15% of the U.S. land area, but it accounts for 25% of enforcement actions by the EPA. The region covers five states and 66 tribal nations, plus a lot of gas and oil fields, chemical plants, paper factories. My next guest helped drive much of that enforcement activity, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. The EPA's Region 6 Director of Enforcement, Compliance, and Assurance, Cheryl Seeger, joins me now. Ms. Seeger, good to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be on. Well, you have got a lot of enforcement going on. Tell us how enforcement works at the EPA briefly. I mean, there is reporting by regulated entities, and if something in the reports is not right, then enforcement comes in? Pretty much. You know, much of what EPA does is generated by self-reporting, but also citizens' complaints, also referrals from the state, and then our inspections. So sometimes we have our list of inspections that we're going to do for the year, and sometimes we also have citizens' complaints that come in, and based on that, we'll also go out and do more inspections. So yes, basically, from whatever mechanism it comes through, we'll do more review and then consult with the violator and then potentially take an enforcement action. And the region you're dealing with includes Texas and New Mexico, and those are two of the largest states by land area, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and again, as we mentioned, these 66 tribal nations. Is there anything in that region that sort of has in common among those areas that would call for increased scrutiny and enforcement? Well, I think there's really a large amount of oil and gas activity throughout the region. I mean, most of it's centered in Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico, but the other states have some as well. The other thing that is very prevalent in the region is the amount of industrial activity in really, that's focused more on Louisiana and Texas, but a large amount of work that goes on in those areas. All right. And so what was the issue? It sounds like in the documents for your Sammy's medal finalist that there wasn't enough enforcement going on in those regions. Again, a large area, a lot of rural areas. What was the issue? 
Well, as I tell new hires coming into our enforcement division, there's no lack of opportunity in Region 6 because, unfortunately, we have everything here. (laughs) So part of the issue was with so much oil and gas activity going on, how do you cover it all? And then the other issue that really became more in the forefront in the last couple of years has been the amount of overburdened communities in the area. So there's sort of a dual enforcement aspect of things going on. Could some of these areas be likened to, you know, just to make an analogy, Palestine, Ohio, where this train, you know, caused that horrible environmental disaster, but there's not much local resource to deal with it. Is that kind of what happens in these areas? That's right. What happened in Palestine was in a very rural area. And again, like you said, not the really the ability to deal with it quickly and efficiently as one might hope. What we have in Region 6 is the, unfortunately, the possibility of accidents like Palestine occurring on a more wide scale framework. And part of that is because of the amount of industry that's in the area. So every year we have a number of explosions that happen at facilities. And sometimes it's just somebody did something wrong, but sometimes it's active nature. Sometimes it's just, you know, equipment failed. It isn't always attributable to a specific person doing something wrong. Sometimes it's just an accident. Nonetheless, we have to go in and look at that and take enforcement action. Unfortunately, almost every year we have at least one or two deaths from some kind of an explosion that occurs um, or some kind of an accident that occurs at a facility. So unfortunately, we have the possibility of it happening on a wider scale, but not necessarily with the impact (laughs) that Palestine had where it contaminates the large area that Palestine did. Sure. We're speaking with Cheryl Seeger. She is the Director of Enforcement, Compliance, and Assurance for Region 6 of the EPA. She's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And I was wondering, do you ever get tips from other federal agencies? For example, suppose OSHA goes in to look at a place and they say, well, we found the okay with respect to worker safety, but it really stunk in there. There might be something you guys need to look at. Yes, that definitely happens. You know, one of the groups we work a lot with is the Coast Guard, work with the offshore agencies. But yes, sometimes another agency can make a referral to us and say, something just doesn't seem right. Can you guys go out and look at it? All right. So tell us what you did. It says, you know, I'm just reading your citation and the Region 6 administrator said, your transformational leadership has elevated the status of environmental enforcement to both reduce pollution and promote environmental justice. What have you done below these many years? Well, one of the things that we've done, and this is really more in the oil and gas area, and so this has more of an impact on the climate change side of things, but is doing these flyovers over the oil and gas sites in mostly Texas and New Mexico because there is very large land mass scales of where there's a lot of oil and gas activity going on, and we just don't have the staff to go out there and inspect every one of these sites. It would we just never catch up. And so what we had started doing several years ago and have just, you know, increased every year is doing flyovers. So we have helicopters that use infrared cameras and scanners, and they can create images of basically leaks from these oil and gas sites. And so we're able to get the data from the hot flyovers, analyze that, and then potentially take enforcement actions on that. And as we started out doing it, we really were in a mind frame of, you know, sort of a find and fix mind frame, right, where we would notify a facility that there was a violation or a potential violation, we'd call them in, we'd show them our evidence and say, get it fixed on a time frame, certify to us that you've done it and would move on. But as we have been doing this over the past several years, we found that there are more and more repeat violators, there are more egregious violators. And so what we've done is started taking enforcement actions where there would actually be injunctive relief, where they actually fix the problem, but then also there's a penalty associated with it. You might notice, say, a valve somewhere far away from the factory headquarters that's leaking. And if they don't fix it, then this is what happens. But they get a chance to fix it without a penalty the first time. Right. And these are unmanned oil and gas sites out in, like in the Permian Basin, the San Juan Basin, Eagle Ford Shale. They're in that area. So they're unmanned, but there's a lot of them. 
And so we've been able to cover just so much more landmass than we would have been able to cover if we sent somebody out in a truck with a handheld monitoring device. So over the past five years or so, we've had 62 settlements that have addressed violations at over 240 oil and gas facilities. So it's really had an impact on the pounds of emissions that are coming off of these sites. And what about complaints from local residents? Sometimes, again, if if something is leaking in Manhattan, you know, there's 75 lawyers that will join a lawsuit the next day, and you'll have community activists and all this kind of stuff happen. The member of Congress will join in. Out there in the Permian Basin or in the sticks of Louisiana, people maybe don't feel quite as empowered to take on a polluter and petition the government. How does that work? How can you improve that? Well, in the basins where we've done a lot of work, those sites tend to be more remote, so you don't get the community complaints that you might get in other areas. What we decided to do a couple of years ago in Louisiana was because of a lot of the regulated industrial activity there, and there's just so much of it, and we have a problem of being understaffed over the last several years. We did flyovers over the chemical facilities there. What we were able to do is look at the areas where both EPA and the state were getting you know, the most types of complaints that might be addressed by a flyover type activity. And so we were able to look at that and target those areas for a round of flyovers. And we've just started to have that data. We've finished the analytical process with that. And we've started contacting the companies that were found to be potentially violating. And we're starting to have discussions with them. And we'll start our enforcement actions in that area. So from a chemical or spectrographic sense, if someone can smell it, you can probably see it from aircraft. Right. If you see the plume, like that's what you'll usually see in these infrared camera videos, you'll see it looks like smoke coming maybe from a tank or a unit within the industrial facility. And you can see it from there and then you start looking backwards and see, okay, like where's it coming from? What's the potential problem? And analyze that and then take the next steps. And did EPA have to hire pilots and and aircraft and so forth? Or did you contract this out? How does that work? We contract it out. We use some of our money that we you know, get every year from our headquarters and we use in inspections and technical support and all that. We, yeah, we have a contract with the pilots that do it. Got it. And uh, have you been on any of the flights to see the plumes and infrared yourself? I have not. I'm, I'm not a helicopter person. <laughs> All right. Well, you've done great work anyway from the sound of it. Cheryl Seeger is Director of Enforcement, Compliance, and Assurance for Region 6 of the EPA. She's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And here's a programming note for our listeners in the Washington, D.C. area. Our broadcast signal here on 1500 AM will be off the air most of today. That's to let our engineers conduct some routine inspections of our towers. We expect to be back up and running by late this afternoon. In the meantime, you can listen to Federal News Radio on 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2, and also streaming at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, June 1st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. 
I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, new small business subcontracting rule means headaches for everybody. Plus, a defense agency helps a civilian agency with a key post-disaster function. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, when the Defense Department started planning the Defense Enterprise Office Solutions Contract Vehicle, or DEOS, in 2015, the excitement, the expectations were real. But eight years after the initial planning and two-plus years after the 10-year, $4.4 billion contract award, DEOS is not living up to expectations. In his reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the military services and defense agencies simply haven't jumped on board with DEOS. Jason joins me now in studio. And a quick reminder, Jason, DEOS, what is it and what were they hoping for when they let this whole thing? The idea behind DEOS is very simple, Tom. A lot of the defense agencies, military services, set up their own email systems. They set up their own collaboration systems. And the idea was, okay, if we're all going to kind of move to Office 365 from Microsoft, let's do it in a way that we do it together, joint. And this idea was to create this one-stop shop for a contract that's called DEOS so the services and defense agencies could buy it. It would be a very standardized way they're buying it. They'd have standardized, you know, kind of baseline security. All this that was the idea was to make it easier, better, faster, cheaper to create these email and collaboration tools. But here we are, Tom, two plus years later and really eight years since the idea of DEOS started. And it's struggling. And it's not struggling because it's a bad contract or something went wrong or the technology is not good. It's struggling because time and experience really has overtaken what they thought it would be in 2015 to what it is today in 2023. So the manifestation of it not living up is the numbers of agencies using it, the number of users, and they have various reasons for balking at it. There's a couple of reasons why it's not living up to expectations. You know, Tom, when we wrote about this back in 2018, the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, which is running DOS, said, hey, we want to start migrating 1.5 million users to DOS in the first 18 months after award. Currently, and there's two pieces here, currently the joint tenant, which is really the big deal behind DOS, the initial thought, only has 98,000 subscription licenses. Now, throughout DOD, the number of subscription licenses sold through DOS has been almost 2 million, which isn't, doesn't sound too bad. But here's the difference. The joint tenant, again, 98,000, 1.97 million generally. Those 1.97 million, most of those are through 13 other tenants set up by the military services and DOD agencies. And then Tenet is just an instance of Office 365. For instance, Navy has flank speed. Army has their Tenet. The Air Force has their Tenet through you know Cloud One, Platform One. And, I've and got Tom Temin. You have TomTemin.com. A tenancy of one. A tenancy of one. So with all these 14 tenancies, then it's as if everyone went their own anyway without DOS. Correct. And, and on top of that, then they're paying different prices now for those tenants. And, and that's the other piece of why it's not living up to expectations. When DISA and their partner through this general, the General Services Administration set up DEOS, they thought, well, the approach would be a month-by-month basis. And what they found, because post-pandemic, the way users use it, they don't want it month-by-month. They are paying for that year-long subscription. So the price under DEOS for that month-by-month is 20% higher than it is if you go through, for instance, a lot of agencies are going through the Navy Enterprise Software Initiative, the ESI contract, it's 20% lower. And that has really caused, again, this idea of setting up your own tenant, paying for your own costs. In fact, Tom, I talked to Air Force CIO Lauren Knausenberger about this idea of, of software licenses, not necessarily about DEOS. And she said one of the ways we found we could save some money to push it to other priorities is by renegotiating our software licenses, including Office 365. Now, to be clear, she did not call out DEOS, but this idea that they're paying too much for software licenses really does tag back to the big problem with DEOS. And because we know now more today than we did you know, when, when this was written in 2015, this has not changed DEOS to keep up with the times. And each of these tenancies then has the potential to, or each agency could negotiate directly with who exactly? One of the integrators? Well, the one thing about Microsoft is they don't sell directly to the government. You're negotiating through their provider, but the provider, and, and the DEOS case is Dell, but in, in, the, in the enterprise software initiative from Navy, it could be any number of resellers. You are getting a lower cost. And in fact, the Army looked at this and 
and said, you know, this doesn't make sense. We don't need to spend this type of money. We're going to actually bring in Google Workspace. And they did it for over uh, 200,000 people in the Army to say, these are not power users. Google Workspace works well because this is what, number one, the younger people are used to. And two, it's cheaper. And three, it's a little more intuitive. And four, maybe there's better security or at least equal security. So that's an example where the Army said, we don't want to pay for that money. And in fact, Tom, I spoke with several different sources for this, both in industry, both former DOD executives who are familiar with the way DOS worked. And basically they said, listen, the price was insane. The price was way too high, didn't add value. And what we learned from the commercial virtual remote, the CVR platform that came up during the pandemic, those don't fit in with how DOS is working today and DOS is offering today. And I think what this comes down to, generally speaking, is the DOD and a lot of the services and agencies have moved on, but DOS has stayed the same. And I think that's the crux of the issue. Yeah, in some ways, it sounds like seat management for the 21st century. These things get too big almost for their own good. So as it stands now, there are 98,000 people under the main instance of DEOS. The other couple of million, those instances are under DEOS or they're through other means so or there's a mixture? They're buying their licenses through DEOS potentially, but they're not under the joint tenant. And they're and they're under these other tenants, and you know I, I spoke. But is with, is one tenant really practical for the entire DoD? And that's what DoD told me. I got a, some comments from their spokespeople, of course, because that's the way they work sometimes. And they said, "Listen, we realize 14 tenants is too many, but we realize one is not the answer either. We we have to reduce the number, and what that number is, we're still figuring that out. Now they are moving DOS and the Office 365 to a classified environment, uh, IL six, Impact Level six, as it's commonly referred to in DoD, and they will have a single joint tenant for that. And I think that's part of, there's two reasons for that. I think some of that's the lessons learned from the unclassified side, but also I think the number of users under the classified tenant will be smaller anyways, and that's more manageable. But, you know, to put 2 million people under a one tenant, I I think that's part of the challenge as well. And the Army wants something that's a little different than the Navy, who wants something a little different than the Air Force. And I think that's why you got Same old story in some ways. Same old story. Very, yeah. So the challenges for the program then are to somehow make a rational case for a, a sane number of instances of tenancies, and then they've got to get the price reasonable. I think the price is the biggest issue here. I think, you know, that's why the Army ended up going to Google and looking at Google Workspace for a certain number of of users, because they didn't need to pay that high price. I think also DoD has got to think about, can they renegotiate that contract with GSA and DISA, you know, through GSA and DISA, through Dell, to get a lower price and maybe reduce that instead of just buying it a monthly Maybe some people do want monthly, but also what's the cost for a annual license? And that would be two different costs. And then the military services can decide what's best for them. Do they want to do it annually or monthly? And if they want to do it monthly, they'll pay the higher cost. If they want to do it annually, they'll pay a lower cost. I did ask DOD, do you have any plans to cancel this DOS contract? They said, we do not. They do see the value there. They do see people continuing to use it. But, Tom, at the same time, they have told me they haven't really made any other major modifications. One, is in in my term not there, is one administrative modifications to the DOS blanket purchase agreement that happened over the last year or so. So there's a lot that still could be happening, and it's only two-plus years into this 10-year contract. But in the short term, is definitely not living up to the expectations that they thought about in 2015 and, and beyond. But your sense is that there is the flexibility and the desire in the program to maybe turn it in a better direction. That's hard to say. <laughs> I, I'd never heard from DISA on this. Uh, everything came through the DOD spokesperson, and, and, and the answer to my questions did not show that they plan to add more uh, users to the DOS program. They said, you know, our goal is the classified version, and our goal is to continue sustainment and to really look at uh, other areas around, you know, dealing with the what they call the DDIL environment, disrupted, disconnected, intermittent, low bandwidth environment, and moving, you know, data, migrations, engineering, support, zero trust, all those key buzzwords. But they never mentioned we will continue to add more users. They may, They just didn't tell me that. All right. Well, interesting piece of reporting. We'll have to keep an eye on this one. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a defense agency helps a civilian agency with a key post-disaster function. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.